Let's bow our heads for an added word of prayer. Father in heaven, once again, we just come to you in the last moments of our time together. We want to thank you, Lord, for the time that we've spent here with you and with each other. I want to thank you, Father, for the organizers of this conference. They didn't need to do it. They didn't have to do it. They could have had a much easier life and time and more time for themselves, but they have a passion for your work, Lord. They want to see your gospel go to the lost, and they know that happens as they train us how to share the gospel. So thank you for them. Give them strength and health and bless their efforts. And bless each of us, Lord, who've been here. May we take what we've learned back and, and use it in so many ways to advance your cause. And Lord, as we spend these last few minutes together, we especially pray that your spirit will be present with us. I pray, Father, that my words will not be my own, but that your spirit will speak to us during this time. May we see you, Jesus. May we see your will being fulfilled in our lives. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Title of my presentation is Adventist for Such a Time as This. A few years ago, in the country of Ecuador, Petita and Augusto, husband and wife, took their 14-year-old daughter, Andrea, out to eat at a restaurant. Now, there was nothing unusual about it. They had gone out to eat many times. But this was going to be destined to be the most memorable meal they had ever shared together in their entire life. So they walked into this restaurant, and the host comes over and leads them to a table. And as they're going to a table, their eyes looked over at a particular table. You know how you, how you are when you go into a restaurant, you kind of look around, and see who's there and that type of thing. Well, as they're walking to their table, they look and they see this particular table with a man, a woman, you know, presumably his wife, and a child about the same age as Andrea. And as they were walking to their table, they, they looked more closely at that girl that was Andrea's age, and they realized that she looked a whole lot like Andrea. She had the same color hair, she had a similar face, and as they got closer to her, the resemblance was absolutely shocking, because in every detail, they were absolutely identical to each other. Same hair, same facial features, same eyes, same height, absolutely identical. Let me show you a picture that was taken later after, afterwards. And you can see the striking resemblance of these two girls. You say, how could that happen? And that is exactly what Andrea's parents, Petita and Augusto, wondered. How could this happen? And so they actually stopped at this table, and Andrea's father almost fainted, and he looked at them, and now the people sitting at the table, they're looking up at Andrea, and they're looking at their daughter, and they too are shocked. And finally, Augusto finds some words, and he says, who is her father? And the couple with the other girl identified themselves as her parents. And that's when the connection actually came to light because the man said, I am her father. And when he introduced himself, he introduced himself as Dr. Roberto Romo. And lights went on in Augusto and Petita's head. That was the name of the doctor that delivered Andrea. You're making the connection. So what happened was, Petita actually had had twins 14 years prior to this. And Petita says she didn't know she had twins. The doctor says Petita was a young teenage mother. And she, when she learned she had twins, she was terrified of it. And she begged the doctor to take one of the children. But Petita adamantly denies that, and there is no paperwork whatsoever to confirm the doctor's story. And so the twins were separated at birth, identical twins, and they happen in one in a gazillion chances to meet each other in this restaurant. 
Now, you, can you imagine discovering that you have an identical twin in this fashion? You know, if there's somebody like you walking around on this planet, that might be scary for some people to consider. But it would be an identity crisis of epic proportions. Now, you think about Andrea and, and the, her sister, Marilisa, what they might be thinking. Who am I? Who am I really? Well, I want to suggest to you that in recent years, Seventh-day Adventists are finding themselves in a similar situation to these twins. That we are facing an identity crisis. Who are Seventh-day Adventists? And it used to be that Adventists were pretty much a homogeneous group of people. Now, before you conclude that I just called Adventists a bad name or that I'm a homophobic, <laughs> you know what homogeneous means, right? It means uniformity. We are alike. And when I joined the church, they told me, they said, you know, the neat thing about the Seventh-day Adventist church is that wherever you go in the world, people believe just like you. Well, I've been around that world now that they've told me wherever you go in the world. And I've discovered over the last 30 some odd years that while that may have been true at one time, it is not true today. That the church not only is diverse in proper ways, in culturally appropriate ways, we look different, we eat different foods and all that, but we are also no longer homogeneous in biblical ways. Now we're heterogeneous, we are dissimilar, we're not alike. And so you go to some parts of the world and you find that uh, they don't keep the Sabbath like you keep the Sabbath. You know, you would think the Bible would simplify it, but it doesn't anymore. Uh, they don't believe in the great controversy scenario of things like we used to. I had one church leader tell me in one place that he didn't believe that what Ellen White outlined in the great controversy regarding last day events, regarding the beast and the mark of the beast, was going to be fulfilled. He thought that was conditional prophecy that comes out of Victorian anti-Catholic era of the United States, and now it's going to be some other way that it's going to be fulfilled, which, in my humble opinion, shows gross ignorance of how Bible prophecy goes together. And so these dissimilar ideas and this dissimilarity, this heterogeneousness, unbiblical heterogeneousness has caused an identity crisis within the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Who are Seventh-day Adventists? You don't even have to have this crisis by traveling to some other country. You can find it within your own city. You could maybe visit the church across town and discover that you're just as shocked as Andrea and Marilisa were when they looked at each other and said, Who am I? You go into an Adventist church and you can say, is this Adventist? Who am I? Am I right? Are they right? It's so worlds apart. What's going on here? And young people especially are facing an identity crisis. As, as young people are forming their own identity and their own individual spiritual identity, and they may have been taught a certain way by their parents that this is Adventism, but then when they grow up and they go away to school and they start getting a broader view of what's happening in the world and in Adventism, they wonder, did my parents tell me the truth? Who am I really? What really is Adventist? I believe that what you've been doing here this weekend at the GYC GO Convention will help you identify and know what Adventists are, who they are, and what they are about. Now, don't misunderstand me. You know, we're different. We're going to be different. No two of us are the same. God loves uniqueness. You see that in nature. But there are some things that we must be common on. The foundational bedrock teachings of the Scripture that make what Seventh-day Adventists, who they are, we must be alike on if we're going to be Seventh-day Adventists. Amen. And so when you ask somebody, uh, an Adventist, who they are, what is a Seventh-day Adventist? Adventists naturally turn to the Bible. That's where we need to go. Because Seventh-day Adventists are a people of the Bible. 
And I believe that there's one particular chapter of the Bible that probably better defines who Seventh-day Adventists are than probably any other chapter. I would imagine you could pick many of them. But this one in specifically, in particular, I believe, defines us probably better than any other. And that would be Revelation chapter what? 14. 14, that's right. It's the passage that really identifies Seventh-day Adventists. And I want to propose to you today that it tells us three things about Seventh-day Adventists. It tells us that Seventh-day Adventists are a people with a message. Amen. It tells us that Seventh-day Adventists are a people with a mission. And it also tells us that Seventh-day Adventists are a people who live life with meaning. A message, a mission, meaning. Let's look at it together today. Go to in my, your Bibles with me, if you will, to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation 14, verse 6. And here we have the introduction to the three angels' message. In Revelation 14, verse 6, we read this. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel, to preach to them that dwell on the earth, to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. Read it together with me. Saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come, and worship Him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. You see, this is the message, the introduction to the message that really identifies who Seventh-day Adventists are. It is a global message. It is a message going to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. But what I want you to notice here as we look at the message part of this, is I want you to notice that this happens at a very specific time in history. Jump down a few verses to Revelation 14, verse 15. There we read in verse 15 the, the timing of when this message takes place. And another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. Now that is not a generic statement about harvest time. It is a specific identifying statement. It tells us the timing that the three angels' message takes place. The time is come, he says, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. Jesus identifies that time. He's in Matthew 13, 39. He says the harvest is what? The end of the world. So this is a message that goes to the world in preparation for the end, for Jesus' return. And it's actually a fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy in Matthew 24, 14, where he says, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached as a witness to all the world, and then the end, what? Will come. You see, so Jesus predicted the gospel would go to all the world before the end would come. John sees the fulfillment of it in prophetic vision in Revelation chapter 14. So this is an end-time message. And it's also not only at a specific time in history this message goes forth, it's also a very specific message. Did you notice that in Revelation 14, verse 6? It says there that he has the, this angel has the what type of gospel? Everlasting. The everlasting gospel. Not just the gospel. But this is a unique term. It's the everlasting gospel. It's the gospel once delivered unto the saints. It's the gospel that Paul talked about in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 30. You, you'll remember this. He was visiting with the elders there, I believe in, in Ephesus, if I remember correctly. And in verse 28, he charges them, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, there's no doubt, he says, that after my departure, savage wolves will do what? Will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So there's this attack from without that will invade the Christian church and will take out God's people. But then he says, also from among yourselves, from within, not just from without, but from within, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. 
Now that's a phenomenal insight Paul gives us and actually ties back to Daniel 7 with the little horn that speaks great perverse things. And so this happened in the Christian church. Within the Christian church, leaders, teachers, and preachers strayed from biblical truth. And over time, you had the development of the apostasy that Paul talked about in Thessalonians, that was predicted in Daniel 7 and Daniel 8 and in other places. And so as time went on, you had a development of false gospels, not the true gospels, but counterfeit gospels. And the true gospel would be lost. What we see in Revelation 14 is the restoration of the true gospel. And that's why he qualifies it as the everlasting gospel. This is the old time gospel. This is the gospel that hasn't changed. This is the one that goes back, all the way back to the very beginning. And this is the gospel that will last throughout eternity. This is not the many false gospels that have gone out. Now, I want to show you a text here that a lot of people aren't aware of. I I use this in every Bible study series I give, every evangelistic series. Acts chapter 3, verse 20, and I want to invite you to turn there with me to that. Acts 3, verse 20. Because Acts 3, verses 20 and 21 actually predict what we're reading about in Revelation chapter 14, verse 6 and forward. And a lot of people don't realize that, but let, let's just look at it. I, I hope you'll find this text as rich as I have and useful in, my, in your Bible studies. Uh, verse 20 of Acts 3, Peter says, Repent therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Do I have the right text there? 19, excuse me. 19 through, yeah, yeah in fact, I'm looking at it. It's right there, 19. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. What is that describing, the blotting out of sins? What would a first century Jewish person be thinking of? The cleansing of the sanctuary, right? He's talking about that your sins may be blotted out in the investigative judgment. In fact, if you read this in the early Great Controversy version, I think the 1888 version, you, Ellen White actually put in, in brackets the investigative judgment. It might be blotted out in the investigative judgment, she added to this. Now, don't let that confuse you. He's speaking to first century people about you repent so that your sins will be blotted out in the investigative judgment. Well, the investigative judgment was a present truth message for anybody, right? Because everybody, no matter whenever you've lived, your name is going to come up in the investigative judgment. Uh, And that's the final arbiter of, of what happens to your eternal destiny. And so if you lived in the first century, you need to be thinking about the investigative judgment, that how your sins would be blotted out so that you would be deemed worthy of eternal life through Jesus' grace. So he says, repent, be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now watch this. And verse 20 now. That he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive. And other translations like the NIV say, he must remain in heaven until the times of restoration of how many things? Of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Here's what Peter is saying here. He's saying before Jesus comes, he has to stay in heaven until all the truths of God spoken from the beginning are restored. And then when they're restored, he will come. Seventh-day Adventists see themselves as restorers of those truths. Revelation 14.6, qualifying the gospel, is a restoration message. It is a restoration of the everlasting gospel. It's the fulfillment of Acts 3, verses 20 through 21. And so this message is an important message that must go to the world, not just so we say we've got it right. The gospel is not a static doctrine that you can just quantify on a piece of paper and say, these are the elements of the gospel there. This is orthodoxy. We've taught orthodoxy. You believe, do you believe in the orthodox, the real gospel? Okay, you got that straight. Now Jesus can come. That's not what it's about. The the, the gospel is dynamic. 
It's not just words on a piece of paper, but there is supernatural spiritual power to make those words dynamically life-giving in our hearts. So that you can take a drug addict, you can take a wanderless person, somebody doesn't know what they're doing in life, and somebody's beating their kids. You take the worst example of humanity you can imagine, and you can take that person, and when they hear the gospel, and it's sent home to the heart by the Holy Spirit, it totally transforms them. Amen. It's powerful to change lives. Amen. That's why the gospel has to be restored. Because Jesus says, my word is truth. Sanctify them, what? Through thy truth. The gospel has power to sanctify and change our lives. And if there is going to be a people prepared when Jesus returns, then the gospel needs to do the work in their lives. And that's why there is this restoration of the gospel in the last days as a testimony to the universe as to what God's love and power actually can do in someone's heart in contrast to the deepest, grossest, darkest time in earth's history caused by Satan. Adventists are restorers of that gospel. We are a people who've been given God's message to proclaim it to the world. Now, I would expect that some would say, well, that's arrogant. And I would anticipate that from people without our faith. It does sound arrogant. But I would remind those people by saying, no, we're not saying Adventists are better than anybody else. We're sinners saved by grace just like you. But we're a people from all the different nations of the world, from all different religious backgrounds, Christian and non-Christian, who have said, we want to follow Jesus and his word completely. Amen. That's why I don't keep Sunday. That's why I don't eat unclean foods. I've given up all that because I want to follow the word of God. If I'm going to be a Christian, I want to follow Christ in everything. And not to say that there aren't people in other churches who don't have a heart totally sold out to God. They want to follow him completely. They just might not have discovered all these truths in the Bible. So there's no arrogance intended there. And yet, then you'll have people within Adventism who will say, that's arrogant. Now them, I have a bone to pick with. Because they should know better. I, I was, uh, moved into a new town and I was church shopping for an Adventist church. And I went to one church. It was really the, um, the main Adventist church in town, really. And my wife and I go into Sabbath school class, and that particular quarter and that particular lesson was on the remnant church. So there, I'm sitting there listening to them talk about the remnant church. And these were leaders in the church, leaders in the community, who said things like this. They said, who do we think we are, Seventh-day Adventists, calling ourselves the remnant? That's pretty arrogant. We're no better than anybody else, which I would agree with. But then they went on and they said, you know, we're all equal in these churches. And they didn't understand any distinctiveness about Seventh-day Adventists. And man, I wish I wasn't so well known. Because I would have raised my hand and said, oh, thank you so much for clarifying that for me. Because you see, I just came from the Baptist church down the street. And people told me that you really had the truth here. But since you don't and you're no different than anybody else, I'll just go back to my church. And I would have gotten up and walked out of the room. I couldn't get away with that. I would have loved to have. But I didn't attend that church. I found another church. We need to know that we've been giving, given a specific message. It's not a new message. It's the everlasting gospel. It's not the Adventist message. It's God's message, clear and simple. And we are simply a people who have responded to this everlasting gospel from every nation, kindred, tribe, tongue, and people from around the world. And it's a precious message. Let me quickly show you the elements of this gospel. Just so if anybody has any question about what we're talking about, that as Adventists, we're not just reading into this. Look at it real quickly. Let's do a quick survey of it. Revelation 14, verse 7 says... Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains and waters. Fear God and give glory to Him. What does that mean? 1 Corinthians 6.20 and 1 Corinthians 10.31 tells us that you glorify God, you glorify Him in all that you do. 
right? Whatsoever you eat and drink, you glorify God. And so this is a message to really live to God's glory, including right down to your eating and your drinking. That's why we have a health message in the Adventist church. The hour of his judgment has come, Daniel 8, 14, pointing us forward to 2300 days and the cleansing of the sanctuary in 1844, beginning in 1844. No one else is preaching that message. Worship him who made, quoting from the fourth commandment, pointing us to the creator God and to the seventh-day Sabbath. Revelation 14, 9 uh, through 11 refers to the beast and the mark of the beast and the image of the beast. And God's last-day message, just before he comes, will identify who the beast, the mark, and the image of the beast are. Now, some people say, well, we shouldn't preach those things. And I've heard that as an evangelist. I'd go into town, I'd preach the prophecies. And, of course, the non-Adventist pastors didn't understand the prophecies, so their people would come to our meetings, and their people would get excited about these truths. They'd go back to their pastor, and their pastor would say, you don't need to understand prophecy. How many of you ever heard people say that? All you need to do is understand the gospel. And they'll come back to me, and I'll say, it's exactly what I'm teaching you. Revelation 14, 6 is the everlasting gospel. It's a contemporary gospel. It's what Jesus is doing now. It's present truth. But then we hear this even from within our own midst. It's identity crisis. People saying, we don't need to preach about the beast and the horns and the hooves, and they say that in a derogatory way. Man, I would not want to have to answer in the judgment for saying those type of things. You think about an artist. An artist does their paintings, hang them on the wall of their home. Would you go into their home and say, what in the world were you drinking the day you painted that? that that's an ugly, awful piece of art. You call that art? But we do that with God when we walk into the very book that he inspired. He's the one that talked about beasts. He is the one in his infinite wisdom decided the way to present truth for the last days was to depict these beasts with horns and hoofs. And when we say, oh, you're just preaching all the horns and hoofs, we are criticizing the author of that book. It's sacrilegious. Now, I, I admit that there are people that don't know, have not seen the gospel and revelation in our midst, and they just go around lambasting the Catholic Church and all this all the time, and they're, they're, they're not right in the way they preach Revelation. But Revelation is a revelation of Jesus Christ, even when you're preaching about the beast and the mark of the beast and the image of the beast. And so this everlasting gospel will do that. We do that. Revelation 14, 12 says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. So we're going to preach and teach how to keep God's commandments by faith, the faith of Jesus. There will be a balance of faith and works. Revelation 14, verse 13, I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Right, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may what? Rest from their labors and their works. Do follow them. The state of man in death being a peaceful rest and sleep. And then you can read on about verse 14, the second coming. I looked, behold, a white cloud, upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. <laughs> I mean, every element of core Adventist teaching is right here in Revelation chapter 14. You know, the whole three angels' message, state of man and death, the sanctuary, second coming, it's all right there. God has identify this movement as a movement with a message. And we must not lose sight of that message. What do you say? Amen. A couple months ago, there was a South Korean television personality, a Mrs. Yoon Hee, 63 years old, very well-known preacher on TV. And she wrote books about how to be, how, find happiness and hope and other inspirational topics, and she preached on it all the time. So much so that she became known as the happiness preacher. And a couple months ago, I believe it was in, in, in October actually, she and her husband checked into a hotel, and they both committed suicide. The happiness preacher lost sight 
her message and didn't benefit from it and committed suicide? Could it be that Adventists who are having identity crisis are doing something very similar? We lose sight of our message, and in doing that, we lose sight of our identity, and instead of growing and being a vibrant church, we end up becoming a dying church. So are people with a message. Who are Seventh-day Adventists? People with a message. Who are Seventh-day Adventists? People with a mission. Revelation 14, verse 6 says here that this everlasting gospel goes to every nation, to every nation, every kindred, every tongue, every people. And it's in fulfillment of Revelation 10, verse 11, where John was told, you must prophesy again to many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. So this is a message that goes to the world, and as custodians of this message, we are called to have a mission, to take this mission and this message to the world. And the day we lose sight of our message and our mission, then we will become another archaic relic within the decaying walls of postmodern Christianity. Do you follow me? Our relevance is found only in our message and our mission. You can go across Europe and now across this land and find old-timey churches that are empty. In Europe, you can find them where they've been turned into hotels and to bars and uh, all sorts of pubs and all sorts of things. But now we're even seeing that in our country. We're seeing churches that just have a few people in them, and it's because they don't have a mission anymore. They don't feel compelled to go share the gospel with the world. And that has been a critical mistake that religious movements of God have made throughout the centuries. You think about Israel. Israel committed this mistake. They lost a sense of their mission. And they did it two ways, and I think it's instructed to us. They became exclusive. They walled themselves off after returning from the Babylonian captivity. They walled themselves off. They were critical of others. And they lost their sense of mission that they were to be salt in the earth to win the lost people around them. And that was a deadly mistake. Well, then, that, that was before the... Um, yeah. Then, then there are other parts of t in, in their history prior to the Babylonian captivity where they were too inclusive... They compromised their message and their identity, and they became like the people around them. And so the devil doesn't matter which side, which ditch on the road he gets you in, but he knows that if he can push you one way or the other, that you will lose the exclusive calling that God has given us, and that is to take his gospel to the world. Christianity did the same thing. You know, they were exclusive, they just kept to themselves. We see the empty churches in Europe, and then they became inclusive. And we see that today is really the main problem with churches are worldly today, aren't they? You know, just like the world. What about Adventism? What have we done? Have we done the same thing? There have been periods in our history where we've been extremely exclusive. Yes, the, the world church has always had a missionary outreach, and that's what's kept us focused. But when you get down to the local level, you'll find that local churches have become exclusive. They don't think about saving the lost people around them. What happens to those churches? They die, don't they? And then, now you've got to shift in, in various parts of the world where we're saying, we've been exclusive for too long, we've got to go out and win the world, and we've been too exclusive, now we need to be inclusive. And then we let the pendulum swing all the way the other way, Right? And we're living like the world and acting like the world, thinking that we're going to convert the world, but what's, who's being converted? We're being converted, aren't we, to the world. So the devil doesn't matter, doesn't mind which extreme he tosses us to, as long as it's one of them. But we need to focus on what God has really called us to do, and that is to be faithful to the message and diligent about the mission. And share this everlasting gospel with the world. And why should we do it? Because if you're a Christian, you share God's love for the lost. I mean, the Bible says that even Jesus himself is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 
And if we're his children, we should share that same passion and that selflessness of going out and saying, how do I win someone else? And so when I'm at breakfast this morning, I'm sitting with my mates from Australia there who just dropped in on me to share breakfast. And I'm thinking, I need to share a word with them. I don't worry about what's it going to make me look like. Are they going to say, oh, that's some religious nut cake we just ate with. I don't worry about self. I worry about souls. And I step out of my comfort zone, and I go knock on that door and try to get the Bible study. You know, I, when I was first converted, I was in the church about a year, and I said, there's got to be more to this than just sitting around warming a pew. I've got to be involved. I need to do something. I need to tell others. And I read the book, Cole Porter Ministry, which is a fatal mistake if you don't want to go door to door. I read the book, Cole Porter Ministry, and I said, I've got to go door to door. And I tried to get a Cole Porter to take to take me and he he was burned out on Cole Porter work and he said no you don't want to do that and I said I gotta do it and I went out and I sat on a corner by myself no training zero training and thought now what do you say at the door I was there for nearly three hours psyching myself up to go to that first door because like I told you earlier this weekend, I remember the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons coming by my door and what we thought about them. And I just knew I was going to get tons of rejection. And finally I said, I just got to do it. I've got to do it. So I go up to the first door and I knock on the door and nobody's home. Next door, find somebody home. They slam the door in my face. Every single door, I'm not getting in at all. Finally, I see one little old lady sitting out on her porch. She's outside. Now, she has been watching me go up the other side of the street. And she's an old lady with a cane, and she's sitting there watching me. And when I look at her, you can just, it's like a movie in slow motion. Our eyes locked, and we read each other's minds. And she knew she was my next target. And I knew she knew. So I started walking with my books across the street, and she slowly got up with her cane, and she started walking towards the door. And I started walking faster. She started shuffling faster. And I started walking very fast. And she started shuffling like this to her door. And that little old lady beat me to her door. She actually got in the house before I got there. And just as I got there, I said, ma'am, I've got a free book. Bam, the door shut on me. And I said, oh, man, I can't even get a little old lady out there. And it, it, it was a big downer for me. But you know what? If I had never gone out that day, I wouldn't be doing what I do today. You've got to put self aside. And God will take your humble efforts and he'll start teaching you. And he did. He taught me how to get into those homes. And we do it because we love the lost. Like Jesus loves the lost. Tragic story, but just a couple months ago, Cheryl Blackenbaker was out with her granddaughter, Cassidy, a 12-year-old girl. They were in Amarillo, Texas, and they pulled up to the, uh, the gas station there, convenience store, and filled the car up with gas, and they were walking from the car up to the store to go pay and pick up a few things, and a truck pulls up with a guy in it. Pulls up, he opens the door, he grabs the 12-year-old girl, broad daylight, with a gun, and he starts pulling the granddaughter into the truck. Cheryl, being the protective grandmother she was, jumped in there and started wrestling with that man. Enough so that he was able to, uh, she was able to help her granddaughter, Cassidy, break loose. And in the scuffle, the man pointed the gun right at the grandmother and said, do you want to die? And she said, no. But she wasn't going to let this guy run off with her granddaughter. He pulled the trigger and shot and killed her point blank. Right in front of Cassie, right in front of her five-year-old brother and others, and raced off. But Cassidy's life was saved. The grandmother gave her life for her granddaughter. Why would she do that? One word describes it, right? Love. And Cheryl's husband, Dale, said this. He wasn't surprised at all about how his wife died. He said this, she would have done anything to protect those kids. That was her mission. 
And the granddaughter, Cassidy, says this, I hope that when I'm older that I can be exactly like her. She was my role model. She was, I think, the woman everyone should be. Jesus is our role model. He left the convenient courts of heaven and came down to this planet and put himself completely out, even to the point of a terrible death bearing the sins of this world because he loves us. He gave it all for us. Hey, when I grow up, I want to be like Jesus. How about you? Because he's everything I should be. And if that's the case, then as Adventists, we must follow the mission that we've been given. We've been told to take the gospel to the world. And if we're going to do it, we need to be about our Father's business. Amen? Amen. And that's what's so exciting about GYC and about you folks coming here, and especially about you young people. This is where it's at. It's about understanding that message and sharing that message with the world. That's when you'll really connect with God's love. Because when you're working with a soul and you start seeing them wrestling with truth and some of them will turn away, you'll not have 100% success. Your heart will break for them. And at that point, you will begin to enter into the sufferings of Jesus. Only then will you begin to understand what Jesus must feel about us. Those of you who are parents or parents-to-be, as you realize you can't make choices for your children, they have to make their own choices you'll realize how God must feel about us as he looks down on our lives and he's cheering for us to make the right choices, yet we still make wrong choices. As a parent, you enter into the sufferings of Christ as well. And only as we're engaged in ministry, in our families and to the communities, only then do we really understand the heart of God. I mean, he's told us in the Bible, and I love the lost, but it's words on a paper until... You feel that love for somebody who's lost. And you also feel the joy of when they are found. We have a message. We have a mission. The third part here that we find that identifies Seventh-day Adventists is we are a people who live life with purpose and meaning. It comes from our understanding of the message, and it comes from our responding to the call to the mission. It's kind of like a pyramid. The foundation is the message, that informs us and motivates us. And then we go do the mission, and that mission and message combined works in our lives to give us the apex of an experience where we live life with meaning. And we say, ah, this is what it's about. I was 17 years old when I gave my heart to Christ, and one of the key things that led me to seek out and understand the Bible was I was looking for meaning. I was a thoughtful young man, though a foolish one. I was doing things in the world, and yet even some of the music and the things I was listening to and doing, I kept, through it all, I kept thinking, what is life really about? And how am I going to spend my life? I graduated from high school, got out a little early, was able to graduate early by ramping up my courses. And I got out and I thought, what? And I just turned 17. What am I going to do with my life now? I could go to college. Should I set my sights on a career and money? But as I looked around, I thought, you know, those people aren't finding happiness for the most part either. At least I wasn't seeing it where I was coming from. I know that a lot of people are very happy in their careers. But at that point, I thought, didn't seem like meaningful life to me. Or you live and you like your career and you earn this money and you work and you burn out your health and all and then you get to be old in your 60s. Not old anymore. (laughs) And then you say, what have I done with my life? And as a young person, those were the thoughts kind of just floating around in my mind. And at that time, I didn't have the answer to it. I thought there's got to be more to life than just living, earning money, and dying. There's got to be much more to life. That's what led me to go to the Bible. I was actually studying Buddhism at the time. And I had had some Christian background when I was a kid. And I was taking martial arts at this point, and I was studying Buddhism. And, you know, Buddhism helps you, you know, be at peace with everybody else around you, supposedly. But supposedly be peace with yourself, too. But I wanted to understand what was happening in the world. And I I remember meeting one Christian one time. And I remember being on a walk, that Christ, one Christian said this, said, you know, God knows the future. 
And he explained to me what Bible prophecy was. And at that time, when I was later, when I was 17 and I was processing all this, there was a movie in the theaters, kind of like the Doomsday 2012 movie, but it was called The Late Great Planet Earth. It was talking about the Middle East crisis that was going on. You know, back then in the ancient history of our country, we used to have to wait a mile in line to buy gasoline. You guys remember that, right? You'd get up and you were allowed 10 gallons of gasoline. You know, that's what gasoline was about, about buck twenty-five or something or less, actually. It was cheap then. You had to wait for it. People would push their cars, they'd turn them off and push them up to the pumps. And so I went to the late great Planet Earth movie and I thought, yeah, that guy told me God knows what the future is. If God knows what the future is and I can figure out what God knows, then I can know what to do with my future. Makes sense, doesn't it? Still makes sense today. And that's what led me to the Seventh-day Adventist evangelistic series on the book of Revelation. Because I thought, I need to go find out what they have to say about Revelation. Because I tried reading the Bible myself. I picked it up, started reading Revelation, and I tossed the Bible on my bed, and I just thought, boy, if I'm going to understand that, someone's going to have to teach me. And right after that, God led me to the Seventh-day Adventist. And as I learned God's perspective on the future, I did find my future. And I found my life. Prophecy is wonderful. This message is transformational. And because the church took the message and performed its mission, it changed my life and it gave me meaning. And now I am out there sharing God's truth and message and mission with others, and I found meaning in that. And I'd like to propose to you that no matter what your life career is, whether you're a doctor or an accountant or a homemaker or a mechanic, whatever you are, you will not fully find meaning until you understand the message and share it in a mission. Then you'll truly find meaning. And that's why places like AFCO and Life and Arise, you find people coming, leaving their careers, coming back, saying there's got to be more to life than just this career. And, you know, God wants us to stay in those careers too. He does call some from the plow. We're told he would do that. But you'll not find meaning until you perform the mission. We should not be having an identity crisis, brothers and sisters. God has called every one of us, and He has a purpose for your life. Whether you're young or older, God has a purpose for your life. And He wants that purpose to be rooted in Revelation chapter 14. Amen. Because it is God's perspective on this hour of earth's history. It is God saying, I will have a people who will give the everlasting gospel to the world and prepare people for eternity and for my return. You are an Adventist for such a time as this. And GYC and this time that we've had together this weekend is part of God's mission to make us Seventh-day Adventist Christians through and through. Would you agree? So let's commit ourselves as we leave this place to be an Adventist for such a time as this. So many people within our church, brothers and sisters, are having identity crisis. A dear friend of mine who is a minister in the Adventist church, doesn't pastor a church, but he ministry in another way, and I, I won't give details. But he recently has lost sight of his message, of God's message, lost sight of the mission, left his wife, left his kids, all of that. That's what the devil does. Gets you off track. It can happen to anybody, even a minister. We need to rediscover the heart of our Father, our Father God. I'm going to close by sharing with you a story of Wanda Rodriguez back in August. She was assistant head nurse at this hospital on this floor and she in the Bronx and she had just come on and she was discussing this uh, new admission of a new patient. And they told him about, you know, he's got cancer, he's dying. And then they said the name of the patient, Victor Pereza. And when she heard the name, Victor Pereza, Wanda in her own words says, Oh my, that was the name of my father who broke up with my mother shortly after I was born 41 years ago. Could it be? As soon as she could, she went to his room 
She was his nurse. Asked him if he was comfortable. Her mother had told her that she looked just like her daddy. When she walked in the room, she saw this man. It was almost like Andrea and Marilisa looking at each other in that restaurant. They looked so much alike. She was shaken by it. But she started fluffing his pillows and talking to him, asking him if he was comfortable. And she said, you know, what's your name? He told her. And she said, uh, do you have any kids? And he said this. He said, I do, but my kids are grown. And I have an older daughter, Gina, and I have a younger daughter named Wanda. Her. 41 years, he, she had never seen her daddy. He left as soon as she was born. But he still said, I have a daughter named Wanda. With that, she burst into tears and fled from the room, was crying out in the hall, almost faint from just the shock of it all. And when she got her composure back, she walked back in the room and she said, I'm Wanda. And he said, I know. <laughs> they looked so much alike. He was dying of cancer, probably dead by now. But since that incredible reunion, the two of them tried to make up time by spending as much time together as they could. You see, God wants us to find our identity in our Heavenly Father and to spend that time with Him and hear His message that He loves us and He loves a lost world and He's calling us to share His heart and His love for the lost. I want to commit myself anew to that this weekend and have done so through the many appeals, and I know you have as well. And I just want to pray for you as we get ready to close here and Wes is going to come up and I think you're going to lead us in a time of prayer, aren't you? And I want to pray for you, uh, Wes, if I can have a time to pray during that time of prayer as well. I want to pray for you that God will use you in a mighty way. And especially you young people, I know that, you know, you're, you're at a point in your life maybe where you're thinking, you know, what's going to happen in the future, you know? You know, I've got school, I've got, you know, what am I going to do with my career? It's, who am I going to marry? You know, all these major life questions. But you know, God is good. He'll, as you walk with Him by faith, He will give you the answers. Amen. The main thing you need to focus on is being faithful, being faithful to God. And God will open doors before you. Wes, come lead us in prayer.